You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right, listen up. Uh, know what that was, folks? We just cracked open our running public beer mile beer. Brack and I I splattered my whole computer screen on my microphone when I opened this. Cheers, Bracken. Cheers, Kirk. This this is a proud moment for me. Oh, that's a good beer. Now I'm not saying we're celebrities. And I'm not saying that we're we're the most important people that we know. I'm not saying that we're just above everyone else, but when you get a personalized beer can sent to you without request, that's celebrity stuff right there, Kirk. That's that's next level. I had a small taste of stardom in my reality TV stints, and nothing compares to having a a beer with your logo on it. Nothing. Now, did you see uh, Ian Caskey said that this, this is a caricature of you? I did, and I shaved my beard. I shaved my beard that day, so he doesn't yeah. know it's not me anymore. Also, speaking of names, as long as we're talking about figures in OCR, Forrest messaged me. Yeah, what did he say? I was right. His name, his last name is Bogue. Bogue rhymes with rogue. Yep. Nailed he it. said he just gave up a long time because no one knew, and I feel terrible because nobody knows my name. Everyone says Cracker, or Craker, or you know, it's it's too confusing. Well, all the A's and the K's in my name. No one says Crocker. And so I make it a point to know people's names that I didn't know. And I coached Forrest for a while <laughs> and I didn't know his name. So shoot. Uh, well, Forrest, uh, did you good there? And he wrote a century this weekend. Yeah. He went out in the pain cave and ran, wrote a hundred. I saw that with a bunch of elevation gain in Glacier National Nine, Park. 9,000 feet <laughs> or 8,300 or something. Well, I biked 52 miles yesterday and 30 today. For me, that was big time mileage. Um, but hey, we got to right. thank we got to thank this the gentleman who sent us these beers. Yes, uh, one of my athletes, Jay Fettig, he uh, he owns a brewery and he took it upon himself to make some brews for his own beer mile. And uh, so he uh, he made a bunch of these from North Pier Brewing Company in Michigan. Uh, thank you, Jay, for sending those over. Made my yeah. damn day. If you're into the microbrew game. Or any sort of he he also sent over some I thought they were all beers I, I looked at it there's mixed drinks in a can yeah Jess has been sucking those down <laughs> Lisa and I had had one last night the the rum and uh, pineapple yeah it's good and, stuff and grapefruit anyways if you're looking to support someone in the industry I <laughs> I can get behind supporting North Pier Brewery yeah they did it right it's a good beer too um, yeah. and you know what I like about this beer and then we'll move on is it's smooth like if you're talking about a beer mile beer you know. This beer is going to go down real nice. It's not crazy carbonated either. Nope. Tactical. Um, so, Mr. Brackenstein, we uh, we have a couple races coming up this weekend. Yes, we do. The numbers are going up on the back end finally. I will say people are signing up. It's good. It rose to the occasion. People are rising to the occasion. So we wanted to uh, talk a little strategy and pump the mm-hmm. races a little bit. And um, so I think I think it's important, you know, 
we haven't raced in a while. And these are two very different races. The beer mile is half fun, but a lot of more misery than I think a lot of you are anticipating. And then the burpee 10K is just a pure suffer fest, okay? Um, let's talk strategy for the beer mile. What, what do you suggest and people do here to run their best and, and keep their beer down? These races are as far on the other end of the spectrum as you can get, in my opinion. Yep. The beer mile is about getting out hard and fast and hanging on for dear life, in my opinion. 100%. You're, you have to drink fast from the start and you have to run faster from the start. It's all about transitions, just like a standard obstacle race. You got to get in, get it cracked, get it down and get out and get your burps out and get everything out while running. But you have to run aggressively from the start. You will not negative split this. Even if you go out easy, you will not negative split this because your gut can't handle, what, what is that, 48 ounces of liquid? Yep. Plus carbonation and all the the oxygen that you swallow down while you're gulping, your gut can't handle it well. So you're going to get slower as you go. So all you can do is bank time early. Yes, you can. Yeah, I would go out. I mean, if you're really looking to race this thing, I would go out as hot as you can. That first lap is going to be an exponential decrease in how well you feel. Uh, the first lap, maybe the second, are the only chances you have for running somewhat quick before you start to feel like your body's just you're going to blow up. So uh, go out hot in that one. And we don't always recommend people go out hot, but you know what? In a mile anyways, you should go out aggressive, regardless as to the beer. So I wouldn't treat it any differently. Uh, that's honestly the only recommendation that I, that we have. I think that's if you're running out slower than what your mile PR pace would be, you're doing it wrong. Oh, if my goal, let's say I'm in five-minute mile shape. Here we go with our five-minute pace stuff. But if you say I'm in, <laughs> in five-minute shape, I would go out at five-minute pace or under for that first quarter, 100%. Yeah, or under. Yeah, or under. You too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So if we'll, we'll run the spectrum, whether I'm in the, the people that have run 436, I think is the the record for the beer mile. These people were like a 357 or a 353 miler. Yeah. And they're running under 60 seconds per lap. So they're running sub four pace, which is pretty darn close to their mile PR in between every chug. And the same thing, if you're running a nine minute mile, you've got to go out in faster than nine minute pace or right at? I would say a reasonable goal, like you're doing very well in this beer mile. If you are somewhere like even close to within a minute of your current mm -hmm. mile fitness, you've run yourself a damn good beer mile. So if you're starting to set some goals for yourself, I would just tack a minute onto your current PR. And if you can run that or even a little under a minute less than your, your current PR, you, you may be sitting pretty. That's about best case scenario, I would say. Yeah, I think the world record holders can probably do it within 45 seconds of their PR. Mm -hmm. And the studs do it about a minute slower than their PR. So yep. if, you're, yeah, if you're within a minute to 75 seconds, you're doing well. And like any other race, I think you got to practice. I think that you should have once or twice this week practice cracking, chugging, making sure it's empty, and just feeling that fullness. And if you don't want to do it with alcohol, do it with LaCroix. You know, yep. tra train heavy. <laughs> do it with LaCroix with a ton of carbonation. And then just get used to running and burping for a few meters. It's, it's, no, fizzy, like fizzy water, as we call it, uh, does the exact same thing. It has nothing to do with being worse. drunk. You're, you're not. Yeah, it's actually probably more carbonated than the beer. You oh, it's definitely drink. worse. Yeah. And it's not about getting drunk. And that's like not the point of this. This is just running in discomfort. You're not going to be drunk until it's over. I mean, if you're running somewhat hard. 
Even if right. you do this in 10 minutes, you're going to have maybe a slight buzz by the time you cross the finish line at best. Mm -hmm. So it's not about the alcohol at all. I, some people think it is, but it's not. I got some messages saying this is not fair to let people do non-alcoholic beverages. Uh, to which I reply, go do it with LaCroix and tell me how it goes. <laughs> it's where, Hunter, I, I talked with Hunter on the phone this week and a little pick that name up off the ground that I just dropped. Mm -hmm. And he said last week he did a LaCroix mile. And, and did it in the six mid range, six, like 22 or 632. And he said during the last lap, he got to the point where he was wondering if he was doing lasting damage to his gut. The carbonation <laughs> and the gas expansion was so big in his gut. And he's done beer miles in the fives. He said LaCroix was so much worse. And Matt Kempson said the same thing. He said he did a LaCroix mile and it was so much worse than a beer mile. So yeah, this is not an alcohol contest. This is a carbonation and sloshing contest. Mm -hmm. So let's cover the rules then for people. Uh, most of them know the basics, but uh, why don't you list off some of the highlights, Bracken? So you crack your drink and the time starts. You have to consume every drop of it and you hold it upside down to prove that you drank the whole thing. So, have... so, so, so just to reiterate, you press start, then you crack your first beer. That's when the timer starts. As soon yes. as that beer, you're on. Yes. Okay. And you cannot start, you cannot cross the start line until you have tipped your drink upside down and shown that things have not run out of it. If a little foam falls out or a drop or two, you're okay. If liquid pours out of it, you've earned yourself an extra beer and an extra lap. Yep. And you cannot cross the lap line or the start line until that beer is finished. You can't be walking around, let's say, the track with a beer and drinking it. You can't make forward progress while drinking your beer. You're doing that pretty much at the quarter mile mark, at the half mile mark, et cetera, yeah. and so on and so forth. So you crack it, drink it, tip it, and then you cross the start line and you run up to 300, a minimum of 390 meters. You get a 10 meter transition zone where you can have your beer waiting at 390.1 meters. You pick it up and you can make 10 meters of forward progress while moving, but you cannot crack it open until you get to 10 meters within the finish line. And you cannot cross the start line again until the second beer is empty. And you continue that drink lap, drink lap, drink lap, drink lap time. If you tip upside down and stuff comes out, or if you vomit at any point, you earn a penalty lap at the end, which is another beer and another lap. Now, if you vomit every single lap, you still only do one penalty lap because that's <laughs> enough. <laughs> that's enough. That's, that's what the rules are. So can you, if you vom after you cross the finish line, finally, do you, that's fine? No, I think so, there, there's a, there's a, a gestation period that you have to clear. How long do we have rules on this? Should we make it a minute? I think it's, I thought it was five. You keep All talking right. now about your strategy for it. I'm going to look this up. Well, we had a couple of questions that I wanted to address. One, normally it's five and a half percent alcohol is the international beer mile rules. Since we are allowing NA beer, um, we're not going to do the five and a half percent alcohol rule. If it's beer, NA, it doesn't matter. Uh, also got a question about uh, bottles versus cans. Uh, be my guest. If you want to drink out of bottles versus cans, completely fine. Except yeah. you may not shotgun. <clears throat> may not shotgun. I've drink it through the like a normal human would drink out of your beer can. Um, so bottles are fine. And the other question I got, and Bracken, I'm going to have to get your attention here in a sec because we need to talk this out, is people are vacationing that weekend, Bracken, and they still want to do this. Yes. Not everybody has access to a track. Yes. Okay. So 
I believe that we should still be able to count this as long as you can document this in a way in which we can clearly see that you've run a quarter mile, chug a beer. I don't care if it's laps around a baseball diamond on a road out and back. You have somebody riding a bike along with you, even handing you a beer at every quarter mile. We see your watch face real quick. I'm okay with all of that. Be creative, but make sure that we can tell what the heck is going on. Because I know not all you're going to have track access because of the, you know, the situation. Right. We're okay with that. But if we sense any amount of sketchiness or squirreliness about the data you provide, we reserve the right to just not pay you. Yep. <laughs> and no treadmills. That I've decided firmly on. Definitely. Yeah. No treadmills. And that's dangerous. And yeah, that's just nuts. <laughs> Which we might promote, except that it's our competition and we're... We're not liable, but we're not going to promote a treadmill. Yeah. So did no. you uh, did you find what you were looking up there? Doesn't say anything about um, just in before the end of the race. If you vomit before they finish the race, they have to do a penalty lap. So apparently, if you cross the line, you're then allowed to empty your cavities. All right. Either so, end, your choice. So on the on the beer mile right now. Uh, this one is still far behind the Burpee 10K. We got 28 registered. We're a week out, by the way. We're recording this early, and I think a lot of people are going to sign up last minute. Um, do we want to roll off some of the people you might know who are who are tackling this thing as of now? Yeah, put out some big hitters. By the way, my sister is going after this, and I think my sister can win this. So I'm I'm thinking we're going to keep it in the. Family. I don't know your sister's background. Uh, she's a good runner. She's like a 320 marathoner with like not being like putting a ton of time into her training. But with drinking proclivity uh she can take care of business yeah we got let's see a lot of people here listed up uh people of note ian kasky signed up who's going to be a threat mm-hmm. um cole schwartz is in nicholas Riker is in um let's Go see rich, I saw God rich, signed up rich ryan is in a local ninja warrior guy leafs uh sunberg who's actually might have a chance here um that's for the burpee 10k but we still haven't seen like Ryan Kempson come back on the back end. And a lot of people, myself, you, I may not be participating at all this weekend, by the way. Unfortunately, I had some things come up. Why are you shaking your head at me? Because it's so frustrating. I had a foot issue pop up, folks. I haven't run since Tuesday. We're recording on Sunday. And I got to get a tooth yanked on Tuesday. My my dentist said, you can't, like you have a race coming up? And I said, well, kind of. And he said, yeah, you can't be running for like a few days after we pull this tooth at least and nothing vigorous. So I may be out. I may just be, have to be moderator here, Bracken. Or power walking. Yeah, I could power walk that, sure. But anyways, um, enough about the beer mile. Anything else we got to add to that? Nope, we're good. I, I think it's going to take – oh, let's talk winning times. What do we yep. think it's going to take on the men's side and the women's side? Uh, I'm going to put the over-under at 10 seconds from 530. So 520 to 540, you're going to have to be in that range to have a chance of winning. I think the winner's going to go between 520 and 530. I think what somebody's going to pop it. Yeah. And on the on the women's side, our, our, our uh, signups are a little shorter on the women's side. I'm going to say if you break seven, you're in the mix. Yeah, I think if you break seven. I've had, I think there's going to be about 15 women and about 40 guys signed up for this is what I think it's going to end up being when it's all said and done. But um, yeah, I think seven minutes, you're in the mix. Uh, 645 could maybe win it. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Burpee 10K. This is the one that Bracken demise is his demise. He hates this. Why do you hate hate on the Burpee 10K so bad? I'm not hating on it. I don't like things I'm not good at. Oh, and you are not good at burpees? Or just not good at running that long? Historically, I'm not good at burpees and I'm not good at running after burpees. I can crank out a set of 30 in sub 60 if I need to. 
but I'm useless immediately after. And if I need to run after, then I'm bad at burpees. So uh, that changed when I prepped for high rocks. All those burpee broad jumps got me pretty good at burpees, but I don't know, 10K with burpees every half mile. That's just not my wheelhouse. So that's why I'm a little, got my dauber down as an old baseball coach <laughs> used to say. You got your dauber down about this, Crocs. You do. Hey, by the, just before I forget, you got you to gotta video record your beer mile, folks. I, I don't know why we didn't add in there. Uh, we just glossed over that. You got to record it, iPhone, whatever, record it. Um, Burpee 10K is going to be a real suffer fest. And here's the thing. I've had a problem with a lot of these virtual races that it popped up after COVID happened because they're just a bunch of crap. They're a bunch of random stuff put together, and there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to it, in my opinion. Uh, and I don't know how purposeful some of these virtual races really were to enhancing your fitness moving forward. I'm biased because this was my idea, this Burpee 10K, but I think this is a workout that will make you better. Like this race will make you a better racer come West Virginia, make you a better racer moving forward because there's just no way around the fact that like you are going to be running compromised with a high heart rate on tired legs, feeling blown up for a long time. And that is racing. So I just think this is going to really be a fitness boost for you. How yeah. do you feel about that? Well, it is. And it's going to be miserable. And that's what the second half of any OCR race is or any compromised run is. It's miserable. And burpees rip you up from your toes all the way up to your fingertips. And then you have to run with it. And so it's going to be a great test of what your threshold running is and what your functional fitness is. No, I'm excited to see. I'm excited to see people's heart rate data from that from that effort because I think it's going to be just zone five misery is what I think. I agree. So. I'm going to skip ahead to what do you think can win it? And I have some inside information. Did Christopher Woolley message you? Christopher Woolley? Yeah, he's the no. that animal from uh, Australia. No, no, he did not. He is like their stadium champ down there. He's got a ton of podiums. He's one of Yancey Camp's uh, premier athletes. He came and took um, third behind Hunter and Kent at DecaFit. In oh, Houston. yes. Now I know who this dude is. He messaged you. Did he do a run through or what? Yeah, he and I messaged back and forth a decent amount. He did a run through this weekend. Is he, how fast is this guy's five k time? I don't know. So he's the guy that holds all the Yancey Camp challenges records. So he's good at that stuff. He is the compromised running and the functional fitness king. He's not the fastest five k guy, but he's fast enough. So he said, "Oh, let's see here." <laughs> Was a little cooked from a heavy assault bike workout earlier in the day, but I went hard. Oh, you want me to? 50-14? Yeah. Ooh. So he's in, he, that's basically six-minute pace running and a minute-ish per burpee set. So he averaged 359 for the first six rounds of the run plus burpees. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You're yeah. talking your minute plus your three-flat 800. And then he went 410 for the last six rounds. So he slowed just a hair. Yeah. And that was the second workout of the day. So we know he can go 50-flat. Here's what I think I could do if I'm if I'm fit. I think I can run 550 to 555 at least the first three miles. And I can hit a minute on the head to a minute three for each round of burpees. I think I could run it in 49 flat if I have a good day, if those last couple miles don't crush the shit out of me. And they very may well could. And that's what he said. He thinks he can go 49 flat to 48 high if he nails it. If I so I think the winner and I there's some fit guys signed up. Uh, do you want to look at the Burpee 10K list right now? We might as well. Yeah, we might as well. Yeah, uh, let's see. Looking at the Burpee 10K list again. This is a week out, so there's still going to be a lot more people signed up. We got 42 right now total. 
names that you may recognize. Let's see here. Uh, we got Victor Quesada. He'll be good at that. Yeah, Faye Morgan is in on the women's side. Ian Kasky again. And he's done as many race burpees as anyone. <laughs> so he can yes, run after. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Mark Gaudet. He's going to be good. Uh, Natasha Manzel, an athlete of mine. She's a uh, host of OCR Audio. She is quick. She just did a uh, six by a mile, and she averaged under six minutes per per repeat, like 550-something. She's going to be a threat. Uh, let's see who else we got. Rich Ryan is signed up for it. On the end, uh, client of mine, Dilo O'Connor. Watch out for her. Um, so we Forrest got, we got, yeah, Forrest is in there. Oh yeah. Forrest is in there. Uh, a couple other people. I don't know where he went in there, but yes. Anyways. So we got, we got some, I think some real deal players that are going to go sub 50 on the women's side. I think that it's going to take 645 pace running plus burpees. And that's going to come out to 55 minutes. Let's call it. Sub yeah, 55. I think if you break 58, if you break 60, either gender, you're an animal. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, 58 or under is going to take to go top three in the women. Yep. So what's the strategy then with the burpee 10 K in my opinion? Um, if you check your threshold heart rate, if you know what that all looks like, I would be trying to keep that in check as long as you can. Yes. Because we're looking at a 50 minute, uh, two hour effort, depending who you are. I have athletes doing that, that I think this will take two hours because mm-hmm. it's just such a long, it can be such a long race. Um, I'm, I would probably, if you were to go out and do like a six mile tempo run, I would be looking to dial that back about 10 to 15 seconds per mile. Mm-hmm. And I would, and I would hope to hold on to that pace. That would be my advice for you. I would want to feel super relaxed going into the first set of burpees. Like almost did I go out too easy? And I would want to feel that way through two or three miles before you really got to start like having your coming to Jesus moments. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think starting out right around half marathon race pace is where you want to be. And working the burpees, but not, again, not killing yourself until once you get at least to 100 burpees. Yeah. But yeah, right around halfway. I think if you can get to halfway and you have another gear, that's all you can ask for out of this competition. Dead opposite of the mile, where you want to get to the halfway point already fast, and then you just fall apart and hold on. This one, you want to be able to make an effort increase, not necessarily a pace increase, but an effort increase on burpees and the run in the second half of the race. Yep. I think we're going to see the winners of this thing have something like a 175 to 180 beats per minute average for like 50 minutes. I think it's going to be something just stupid, painful, miserable. And guys are going to start out at 510 to 520 pace, the top guys. And the girls are going to start out at 65 pace. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and there's going to be some – Chris did it the right way with trying to even split it the whole time. There are going to be some people who see God out there on that course. That's what <laughs> likes to say d- during a long workout where you, you're you looking at death dead in the eye. There's going to be somebody who's capable of running like six or seven-minute pace for this who is going to end up walking some portion. <laughs> I think it's going to be one of those. Yeah. They're going to go out. You're going to go out too hot. I would just say polar opposite of the beer mile. Go out more conservative. Now, a couple of things on this. One, uh, if you are in the top three, we are going to require a one-minute burpee submission from you at a standalone situation just so we can piece together your pacing and your burpee time to make sure that you kept it in check. Two, we are going to require Strava or heart rate data from the top three to make sure you're just not standing there pretending to do burpees. We want to see that heart rate spike or stay where it's at. 
So we're going to need that data. I know all you guys track your shit, so we're going to be fine there. But just know that we're going to ask for that stuff to make sure we're keeping it honest. Three, some of you who are thinking of doing this on the track, that's great. Nice, flat, even, don't have to think about it. I am going off of your data. I know some people may run 6.2 miles on the track, but their Garmin's going to say 6.10 when they finish. I need you to run till your watch says 6.2. If that means not listening to the track, I don't know how else to go off of that. So we need to say 6.2 because I could see that happening. Yes. However, not if it beeps early because my watch will beep early. If I run a flat mile on the track, it'll beep 50 meters away from the finish line. Really? See, mine beeps late. And if you do burpees, the accelerometer will count some distance in there. You know what? Screw this. You can't run in lane one. Run lane four out if you're on the track for the burpee 10K and watch your watch. Let's just do it that way. So you're going to go pure GPS but run lane four or out. Run lane four out because it's going to, it's going to, I know it's going to create some gray area. And I think there's going to be some people really close to each other on this. And I don't want to have to worry about it. So no run in lane one, two or three. But if they run in lane one, we'll be able to actually see their start and finish point for the race. We'll be able to see if they do a full 25 laps. All right. But we just need to make sure it's clear that this is legit. Okay. We're going to dive into you if you've taken top three. Well, I think we should put out a proclamation right now. Is it lane four GPS or is it lane one? We have to be able to on Strava see your start finish a full 25 laps. It's a tough one. Because that's easy to see. You can just you know, they show the start finish. It has to start finish at the same place. And as you drag your cursor over on the computer, it's going to show laps. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. 25 laps on the track, lane one. Do not go off your GPS on the track. Go use your GPS. You have to, but you finish 25 laps, not when your GPS hits 6.2 miles or 10 kilometers. All right. Fair. Clear? clear. Good. Any other, anything else we got to hash out here? Uh, burpees can't be April D burpees. Oh God, those are bad. Right. Go back and watch the Killington world championship and then don't do that. Do hit your upper body to the ground and then stand, jump all the way up vertical and put your hands above your head. Don't do that hunch over looking at the ground, but my hands cleared my ears nonsense. Do a real burpee. You're doing this to get better. Spartan rules, chest touches the floor, roll it up, jump forward. Fingertips have to go above the head. That's actually just the only rule, but you have to be vertical with your torso. You yep. can't look like a cat who got scared like yep. when you're jumping up. That's that's the rules. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm 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 I'll get on a soapbox about burpee form. Yeah. I will. And I will DQ you if I don't like your burpees. Yeah, we can do what we want. I'm on a power trip here, Kirk. <laughs> There's no board of directors here. Exactly what you had said a couple episodes ago. If we don't like what we see, you're out. Yeah. So make it legit. And you just lost out $48, bud. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no shit. Uh, all right. We can leave that alone. But you guys um, need to sign up, need to go do this. It's going to be fun. If you want to just look for a misery, you know, laughable situation, do the beer mile. If you want to look at something that's going to enhance your fitness and pay off in the future, do the Burpee 10K. Uh, you know, I think there's reward for all of this. And again, somebody asked us what our special prize was for people who don't win. And we're not telling you that yet. So screw off. Yeah. <laughs> get off my lawn. So, yeah, get off. So do you want to talk about race strategy in general today? I yeah, yeah. Races have been announced. A lot of races have been canceled, but there are still double digit races sitting on the calendar for OCR alone and for trail races and, and other types of just standalone running races. There are still races that are going to be happening. I think the Hamburg Marathon 
is just confirmed that it's still on, even though New York City just got canceled. So all around the world, there are races that are still happening. And we've gone so long without races that this seemed like the appropriate time to talk race strategy because we have one of two people that listen to the show. We've been made aware of the fact through messages and through reviews and feedback that we have a lot of new runners that listen to this and they may never in their life had a coach or a friend or a peer that just sat down and chatted race strategy with them. And they've just been going off feel or off the typical OCR thing, which is just run really fast so you don't get caught at a choke point and then slowly die the whole time. Or you have the seasoned athlete who maybe hasn't thought about race strategy in a while because they're just trying to race the people around them. So now it seems like the natural time to talk about, you've had all this extra training, maybe you've hired a coach, maybe you've just delved into it yourself with some of the things that you've learned and, and that we've talked about, but now you have some real fitness and now strategy really does matter to get the most out of the hard work you put in in training. Mm -hmm. I do want to just say, you know, after we recorded our last training Tuesday, that uh, then the official Spartan season was released, like literally the day after we started uh, or recorded that. So, uh, so that's all out there now. And really, if you're looking at this season alone, if you're looking at the U.S. National Series or the other races on the calendar still, we're looking at beasts and supers predominantly. Some ultra beasts, they're still thrown in there for us. Even though Killington's not happening, there's still some ultra beasts on the calendar. Uh, we're looking at the long stuff. So I just think it's important to, to tell you that based on the races, if you, if you care about the big races, and I know there's other ones out there, I would start really looking at those that longer, like just train like you're training for a beast, I, I would say. If you're not focused on Stadion or High Rocks or Decafit. Stadions are all off now. They are all off. Okay. Yep. They canceled all the stadiums for the rest of the year because Major League Baseball and NFL, they're just not messing around. Okay, great. Well, then in my opinion, based on the races I see on the calendar, you should train as a beast athlete. You can always race down or train down and sharpen for those sprints or supers. So um, I just think that's worth acknowledging. Like, hey, maybe because based on our situation, your specialty races aren't happening. Are you a sprint athlete or a stadion athlete? Well, maybe it's let's let's maybe put a few more miles in our long run. Let's maybe look at, at increasing our volume just to see what happens. If there's a good time to do it, now is the time to do it and ex experiment a bit because those shorter races just don't hold the weight that they normally would. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the general premise of strategy for a race mm -hmm. comes down to one of two concepts. The first is just win, baby. Like you just win, you race for the win. You get in the pack and you just sit there and do as little work as possible and you do whatever it takes to until it's your point to seize the lead and you win. Now that might mean run hard from the start and drop everyone. That might mean hang in the pack until a certain obstacle and then make your move. It might mean wait until the very last descent and make the giant crazy move and drop everyone. But if you're in the I'm racing for the win category, Odds are you've already thought about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The other side of the coin is every single from 800 meters down race was won by positive splits. Mm. Every world record ever set was positive split from 800 meters down. From 1500 meters or the metric mile onwards, everything has been negative split. Every single world record. And there might be one outlier in there. Um, 
I, I can't verify that off the top of my head, but 99% of them have been set on negative splits, which never happens in our sport because everybody gets out stupidly hard. So mm -hmm. it's time to start thinking about how do you actually pace yourself during a race? If you're not there to win, you're there to have your best performance and your best performance will come from marshalling your energy properly. Yeah, let's talk about the open and age group athlete first. Yeah. Uh, maybe with a little less experience under their belt than some of the elites. Uh, as you all know, and my girlfriend Jess is a great example of this. She has she was second at the North American Championships at West Virginia in her age group. She has no running background. She's basically just started training since we met a few years ago. And so she would be a classic age group athlete who has a talent, works hard, but doesn't have a long background in the sport. And she says every single race when she starts – She's in dead last place through like a half mile or a mile. Um, in that race, I was tracking her progress and she didn't, you know, it was halfway through the race. She's in eighth and then two thirds through the race. She's in fourth. And then point being is that getting caught up in that tempo early does you absolutely no good in an open way for sure. And in some of the age group races, Going out super hot, you have plenty of time for make up to make up for that. And since the races are a little longer that are coming up, going out hot, like going out too hot could detriment your performance by 30, 40, 50%. Whereas going out too slow, sure, you might have lost a few seconds early, but it's not going to be a detriment to the overall time or placing. In fact, it's going to be the opposite of that. So I, I think people tend to get out too aggressively and you watch, you watch the last couple hundred meters of a Spartan race bracket. And what does it look like in the open and age group wave carnage death? Like people look like, again, this, the coming to Jesus moments, like they have never felt worse in their life. And I'd say two or three, two out of three people look that way. Mm -hmm. And those same people were sprinting out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And I get it. Because there's a choke point, a log jam, a bottleneck coming somewhere on the course. I get why people want to sprint out, but it doesn't work. And, and here's the thing that I see when I really analyze people who race this way. And there's nothing wrong. I get it. You're pumped up. You're jacked. You've got caffeine in your system. You can't even sit still in the start corral and you come out like a racehorse. Um, some of these races, like if we talk West Virginia or Utah coming up, which is the first stuff on the calendar. These are two hour races or three hour races. A lot of you aren't even doing that in your long runs. You know, like your, your training hasn't warranted one running a hard effort for that long or two, definitely not sprinting to start it. Right. You know, know yourself and know your training. Have you put two or three hours on feet? First of all, if the answer is no, you better be going out like molasses. If the answer is yes, you know what it feels like two hours into a three hour long run. If you went out too hot, you're going to blow up regardless. So a lot of it has to do with knowing your body. Don't go out in a pace in a race in which you haven't done in like an effort you've done in training. Right. And that's where most people go wrong. So the worst possible feeling you can have in a race is getting to a point where there's still a lot of race left and drawing dead on energy and just realizing all I can do from this point on is slow down. It's such a terrible feeling. And you and I have both been there in a race. Like you're doing well, you're where you want to be, or maybe you're not even doing well, but suddenly you realize that's it. I, I have tipped over and all I can do now is try to hold on and staunch the flow of blood at this point. Like I'm bleeding out. There's nothing to do but get worse from here on out. That's the worst feeling in a race. 
And an OCR gets compounded because it's not just being on a track or a road where you can slow 10% and still only lose a few seconds. You're on technical terrain, you're on climbs where the difference in 10% effort might be the difference between running up a climb and walking up a climb or mm -hmm. jogging with a carry and putting a carry down. It's just exponential the time lost that you have. So the only way if you are an open or an age group athlete to approach a race is to get halfway point knowing that you can continue at least as fast as you've been going, if not pick it up. So mm -hmm. the only way to go out is an effort that I know, worst case scenario, this is an effort level I can maintain for the entire race. Mm -hmm. You can always pick up the time and the effort later, but the second you die, it's over. Yes, it sure is, isn't it? There was a um, there was a gentleman that, I don't know if you remember watching the West Virginia race last year, there was a gentleman who went out way ahead of everybody for mm -hmm. almost a mile. I don't know if you recall. And he actually was fast. He has a running pedigree. Yes. He was, he's been training. Okay. He went out over his head. He was in front of Atkins. He was in front of Woods, Killian, Kempson, yada, yada. Do you know where that guy finished? I don't. Somewhere in the 50 to 60 range. Okay. Which is okay. actually respectable at the North American Championship. But, but 45 minutes behind the winner. But he lost 50 spots. Correct. And he did not even go out too fast for his running ability. He was running a pace he could have maintained the entire time. He went out too fast for his obstacle ability. He could not maintain that effort once obstacles hit and terrain hit. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky. Yep. Uh, we should address real quick, if you're looking at a flat course versus a course with elevation gain and loss, you are completely shooting yourself in the foot if there is a mountain course and you are going out too hot, that is just like compounded if you go out too hot for that event. So make sure we have Utah and West Virginia. Most everybody's eyeballing one of those uh, as their first race back. It's just more of a testament to chill. Once you blow up going uphill, there is 0% chance you return from that. Zero. Your yep. race is over. 100%. If it happens on flat, I can come back out of my like, Rev limiter, sometimes. Sometimes I can. I catch a little downhill and I can gather myself. On, on a mountain course, not a chance in hell. So keep that in mind. little personal experience here. Kirk and I have done many big workouts together. And more often than not, almost, Kirk, 100% of the time, you run me into the ground in workouts. Do you, can you think of a time I ever got the best of you in a workout? Nope. No. That's just... <laughs> It's just, it doesn't happen. So we've had several styles of workouts. One time, Kirk, Mike Ferguson, Mick Gorilla, and who else was there? Just us. Okay. We went out for a nine-mile tempo run. Now, mm -hmm. some purists might argue you can't do a tempo for nine miles. That's too long. Tempo just means you're choosing a pace and a duration. That's it, guys. Tempo doesn't mean threshold. It means tempo. All right? Go back, go back to our definitions episode. You tell and me. And get back to us. However... This was my workout. I had that on my schedule that week. Everyone else decided to do it with me. And I'm like, hey, I'm pretty fit. And I'm going to show them I nailed this workout six weeks ago. I'm in better shape now. We did a mile easy. And then we did nine miles hard. And as soon as that mile clicked over, I got to work. Mm -hmm. And I cracked. And they kept running. And I fell apart. And they kept rolling. And I finished like a minute behind you guys. Yeah, something like that. I don't remember. Which is an eternity in a nine mile race flat. Mm -hmm. However, in some hill workouts we've done, 
if I crack, I finish a minute behind you on every 1200 meter hill climb. <laughs> you know, if I crack an hour before the end of a three and a half hour workout, I might finish 20 minutes behind you. Because once you hit the hills, cracking is the difference between running and surviving. So you just can't come back from that. I, I cracked the same amount in two different workouts against the same athlete in Kirk DeWind. And one of the times it was nine miles and I lost a minute. The other time we maybe got nine miles of work and I lost dozens of minutes. You know, and that's why you see, like, if you look at race results from mountain races versus flat races, the gaps become so big on mountain races. Like you don't see somebody win a mountain race, like a regular one by like 10, 20, 30 seconds. Very often you see like three, four minute gaps between first and second, then second and third. You can see a person in 10th place in a U.S. national series. Okay. I was ninth in big bear, 12 minutes behind Johnny Luna Lima this last year. Okay. Because when you crack and I cracked and started cramping, it is, you bleed so much damn time. It's almost embarrassing to think about. So mountain races to your testament, go back and look at all the race results, pick a mountain race and flat races. You're going to see these gaps. You can't even explain. And it looks like the race was a, was a complete wash. Like, Oh my God, that wasn't even a race. It was a race. It was a race for 12 out of 15 miles. But when yeah. those people cracked, there was no coming back from it. So it's just mo managing your effort on a mountain course is like a must. And even on the elite side, like the top, top end guys, on flat courses, it's race, and we should just dive right into this. Yeah, You have to match the front end if you want to do well. And in the top end of age group, you have to match the front end if you want to stay connected. But in the top, top guys, even in elite, in a U.S. National Series race, in a mountain course, those top guys are managing their efforts still. Mm -hmm. They're not worried about what the other people are doing for the first half an hour because they know like the detriment that course can cause. Yeah, even the most dominant world championship victory we ever saw, which is Cody Moat, who won by minutes. Four minutes. Four minutes. He was not four minutes ahead until the last climb of the day. And then he put two minutes on the entire field. And he didn't like accelerate. He just maintained what he could do when everyone else cracked. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's just, there's no way around it. If it's a flat race like Jacksonville, people are going to be relatively close. And we had the closest top 10 we ever saw. If Jacksonville's duration was on a mountain, it would be double or triple. So yeah, if it's Mahilly, you have to go out slower. And I feel like we're belaboring the point, but intentionally. This is something that if you don't have much of a racing background, it's hard to grasp the fact of how much you're losing. In a marathon, there's the stat people throw around. Every second you go out too fast per mile, in the first half of the race, you give back 10 to 15 seconds per mile in the second half. Mm -hmm. And that's how I look at OCR in mountainous races. As soon as you go out too fast, every second you go too quick in the first half, you lose 10 to 15 in the second half. And there's no way around that. The start's tricky, but very rarely do we like get really scientific on this, but let's get scientific for just a minute. Yes, sir. We use carbohydrates for fuel for almost everything we do in our sport. Some people are burning a percentage of fat. Sure, that's fine. The only time we're not is at the beginning of a race. When you first sprint out, you get this, basically it's free energy, right, Mr. Duint? Sure, call it that. Phosphocreatin bonds, you burn them up. They're super rich fuel, but how long do they last for? I don't know, 30 to seconds of 30 to 60 seconds, maybe? 10 to 15 seconds for normal athletes, up to 20 to 25 seconds for trained world-class athletes. All right. Less so, than I thought. So let's just call it 15 to 20 seconds. And that's how long you get to sprint for at the beginning of a race. 
If you sprint for longer than 15 seconds, you're risking your race. And if you cross the 20 second plat plateau, you are now screwed because you're dipping into your anaerobic system and you're starting to just like fire sail your carbs. You get yep. 10 to 15 seconds off the line. That's your chance to get ready for a bottleneck. After that, you have to settle back in and settle into a race. You look at Ryan Atkins. He sprints out as aggressively as anyone, but he gets about 100 to 200 meters out of it. 150 maybe. He's as highly trained as it gets, and that's going to get him 150 meters on technical ground, and then he settles into what he knows he can do. So if you have to be crazy, you get 10 to 15 seconds to be crazy, work your way up through whatever, you know, if you had to start six rows deep, you get 10 to 15 seconds to do it, and then you got to start your race strategy. After mm -hmm. that, it's just giving away the money that you should have to spend in the second half of the race. Those are very good points. Uh, thanks for educating me on the phosphocreatine there. Well, you know, I was an 800 meter runner, Kirk. We live and die by the first 20 seconds of the race. You get as far as you can get on your phosphocreatine bonds, and then you hit cruise control until it's time to kick. Good man. So, all right, opposite end of the spectrum then, since we're on it, going out hot and staying connected. You're one of those guys who wants to, one, win the race, or two, damn it, I'm going to say most all of my age group guys I'm coaching are like, I finish fourth to sixth, and I want to make the podium. I want to win a race. You know, when you've done the work and you are training, you're not exercising, you're training with purpose. This is something I'm currently working on and have been working on is staying connected early in a race if your intention is to podium or win. And we basically are saying if I'm saying if you've earned the right through your training and you know you are conditioned and you can take a few hits or two to your system and still perform, then now's the time we maybe lay some cards on, on the table and we hang on to who we know is favorites to win until we no longer can hang on or prove to ourselves that we belong there. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're training hard and you're taking time to travel to races and you're putting all the energy and money and time and all that into it, and you want to know what you have in your tank and what you're capable of, then it's time to match the players in the front. And if you go down in flames, who gives a shit? Look where Ryan Kempson is today. He went down in flames a hundred times before he stuck, you know, and now he podiumed in the U S national series overall last year. He won't even want to race. So there's a lot of you in there who are looking to make that jump. I feel like everybody's looking to make that next jump. If you feel good about your training, you've done purposeful work you know where you're at. It's time to maybe put your cojones out there and see what happens. Yeah. And there are two types of racers. And I think there's only two types. There are the types that have to be with the people they intend to beat or ahead of them in order to run well. And there are the types that can totally run their own race and do that regardless of where they stand in the field. And mm -hmm. I would say that the two examples of that would be Hunter McIntyre and John Albin. Hunter McIntyre yep is the toughest SOB I may have ever raced against, and he will not give an inch to anyone. His entire race strategy and mindset is predicated around smashing people. And so if they accelerate past him, he catches right back up and puts an inch on them. And that just fuels him. And when you are in a positive place mentally, you can endure more pain. When you are angry or happy, you can just endure more pain than you can when you are bored or when you are sad. And that mm -hmm. is science that has been proven over the course of studies. Uh, if you ever want to, to up your mental game, go read or listen to Endure by Alex Hutchinson and Malcolm Gladwell or How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald. In both of those books, um, reference studies where this has been done, where you, you test the mental limits that you have to endure pain. 
And so you have to be either angry or super confident, relaxed, and happy in order to find your limits. And Hunter gets that off of aggressive racing. John mm -hmm. Albin's the other end of the spectrum. He doesn't care what place he's in. He's just going to run the best of his ability, marshal his energy perfectly, and arrive at the finish line totally spent. He and Hunter are both going to arrive at the finish line spent, but they're going to do it in two different styles. Now, Hunter cannot wait back in 10th place and be a killer. And John does not feel the need to lead a race to be a killer. And you have to identify which person you are first. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And it might take some experimenting to find out what person you are. Yeah, for sure. And what and, and what race, you know, which works best for you. I will say that I have relearned what it's like to hurt a number of times in my career. I, th I think I know what it's like to suffer and to sit in that suffer until suddenly I suffer more. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, this is next level. I sat in that, very proud of my effort. That's what it's like to hurt. And then I relearn it again in another race that asks more of me and I decide to show up that day and, ar and arrive and meet it halfway. And so this is a learning process, you know, if you haven't acknowledged that most of this is a mental game, um, you know, then you're probably not per performing as well as you would, would hope. So I think that testing those limits is okay when they're calculated. Mm -hmm. I think, I think knowing yourself in the course is super important. Um, but we all sit here, think we know we push ourselves as hard as we can. And I think we all still haven't most of us have not reached what it's really like. And that's why I like for the athlete to go out a little harder than than maybe they're comfortable with if they really think they have potential to, to crack a podium and they haven't yet. Only because you're going to learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. And and that athlete I encourage to maybe do that. And I'm I'm working on that myself. It's a constant. It's a constant work in progress for me being calculated versus racing the race instead. And and I think uh, a lot of people are in that boat. Absolutely. And for the vast majority of us, the only way we ever get close to our limits are when we make a choice to go after something that's not totally attainable. The best races I've ever had, all my PRs on the track of the roads have come in races where I contemplated giving up because it just hurt too bad. But, yeah. but at the last minute, there was one thing whether someone ahead of me had a little hitch in their stride that started to show up or someone called out a time to me that made me realize I was in a range of a new record or somebody, we got to an obstacle where I knew I was better than someone or we were just close enough to the finish where it was just like, damn it, I have hurt for so long. It would be a waste of that effort not to just do it a little bit more. And then the breakthrough happened, but they were always right on the precipice of giving up because it hurt too bad. And then with an extra level of motivation, you unlock an extra level of performance. And so to that end, you always have to be at the bare minimum if you're trying to podium or win in sight of your goal. Yeah. And, and that might mean sitting 20 meters behind third place. Like third place is in my sight. I can catch them at any point with one painful move. I know I have it. Or it might be sitting on first place's shoulder saying, I will shadow you until you die or I die. Or it might mean I'm taking control and no matter what anyone does, I will not let anyone pass me. It doesn't matter which strategy it is. It's the one that works for you, but you cannot be out of sight of your goal and still perform at your utmost. And that yeah. is specific to people who are racing for a winner, a podium. You can't let the podium out of range ever. Mm -hmm. I don't think in races that I've won or podiumed, 
the times that I've let the leader or podium out of my sights is zero because mm -hmm. <laughs> it just doesn't happen unless there's an ex extreme circumstance where somebody fails something or they really cramp, which you can never rely on, mm -hmm. uh, keeping them in your sight and then pouncing once you see a yeah. weakness. Um, can you think, Bracken, personally, I'm actually just curious, uh, races in your life which you realize you rediscovered your pain threshold? Yeah, I have uh, I have a couple. Um, the first is my my road PR for a 5K. I had run this course in Madison, Wisconsin. Every, every June, I ran it for four straight years. And I ran right around the same time um, for three years. And then the fourth, I was in better shape. But so was the guy who I had raced prior. And at the mile mark, we just came through a little too hot for what I believed I could do. And I was starting to hurt. And I let him get a little away. And I kid you not, this was my exact mindset. I saw him up there. I saw that he wasn't running faster than we had been running, which meant I was running significantly slower, but I was doing it because I was hurting. Not because mm -hmm. he was faster. I was just really uncomfortable. And I thought, I, at this time, I was competing a lot with Hunter. And Hunter's obviously the toughest guy I know. And I just thought, if Hunter were watching right now, he would be calling me a you-know-what for not mm -hmm. he'd just yell you giant cat why are you not doing that it's only because you're weak and i ran there thinking not only would he do that if he were in the race he would still be on this guy's shoulder and i ran mm -hmm. for like a quarter mile just contemplating how embarrassing would it be to have hunter watch me go through this weak point and mm -hmm. with like a mile to go i just thought you know what if i can't do it when he's not watching I can't do it when he's next to me. So I went after the guy. I thought, I'll give it a quarter mile of effort. And now there's 1,200 meters to go, and he hasn't pulled away from me anymore now. I staunched the flow. And then with 1,000 meters to go, I'd cut into it, and then I started hammering. And I ended up running my last mile in 4.51 to throw times out there. Uh, wow. The previous mile was 5.12. I went like, oh, shit. I went like 501, 5.12, 4.51. You lost some focus there for a second. And I lost the ability to suffer for a second. I didn't want to beat him as badly as I wanted not to hurt that bad. And when I thought I was at, I can't maintain this pace any longer, it took external motivation to realize I can work harder. And then I ran something like 20 seconds faster over the next mile, despite being more fatigued. So it showed me one, I was weak mentally. And two, I have no idea what my top end is because I just got 20 seconds because Hunter was fictitiously watching me. What would it have been like if Hunter was next to me? So that moment like summed up in a nutshell how I needed something. This guy was just in range, but only almost. And Hunter was right there telling me fictitiously that I'm weak. And it was the perfect combination to unlock 20 extra seconds. Did you beat that jump? I did. I caught him with 100 meters to go and blasted him the last 100, set a 5K PR, and then was like, unable to almost live for the next 30 minutes. I was in so much pain, <laughs> That's awesome. but it was worth it because for the next several months, then I could look back and be like, I'm so glad I made that move rather than walking away, not sick to my stomach after that race and just thinking, well, I wished out again. Mm. Any moments after that then that you relearned? Yeah. A couple of times in OCR, I've been at, at points where, uh, in, in, in NBC, uh, back at the time it was the NBC national series, two different times I made back-to-back -back podiums against really top level races where I was in fifth or sixth at the halfway point. I'd gone out in top three, put myself in contention, started to crack. They got away from me and just decided, okay, give two minutes of chase and see if you can cut it down a little bit. 
And then as soon as the two minutes of chase got me five seconds back, it was like, okay, well, I can do two more minutes of chase. Where if I hadn't mm. seen that time, it would have been like, no, this hurts too bad. I can't. And both I wound up back on the podium because chasing and having tangible results kept me going. But I would have quit had I not heard like, hey, you closed the gap. Hearing that mm. shouldn't change your game. But when you're racing for a podium, the idea that it's getting closer makes you tougher. What about you? Well, um, a number. I in high school, I won our um, I won our Green Bay City cross country meet. We only have five schools in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, all big schools, like fifteen hundred to two thousand kids. Where'd you go? Uh, Green Bay Southwest. Okay. So you had Preble, Preble West, East, and Notre Dame. Okay. Notre Dame Academy was the private school, but as a sophomore. Um, I found myself in the lead a mile into the 5K at the city cross country meet. And I had upperclassmen right on my heels, but somehow I, you know, put myself in that position. And I decided that that day was the day that I, I changed my racing career and I held on to that. Um, and it was so worth it. It was so worth it. When you look back, it's like, why don't I do that? And then that was my next standard. And then uh, second day of racing at track, uh, nationals, my freshman year of college, we had run the 1500 trials the day before went in fatigued. I talked about this on my episode. I ended up being an all American the next day after going out at 404 mile pace when I was only a 411 miler at the time. And it was the most painful 800 meters of my entire life. I mean, I'd never felt like it. I, I imagine if a bomb would go off inside of you, that's what it would feel like. And I chose to allow that to happen for two plus minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then finally, I would say my second Spartan race at the local ski hill, Minnesota Spartan race, where I got my I got beat by like eight minutes by Mike Ferguson. And I went to a place that I didn't even know was possible. Once I cracked on that ski hill, I cracked and I realized what it was like to suffer. And every time you relearn that pain threshold, that's your new standard. Like that's what you go into the next race knowing how to do. And so like testing yourself that way and sticking your neck out there and and choosing to sit in that pain is only going to improve your mental capacity the next race mm -hmm. and the next race they build on each other it's your new standard once you set a a, a mile pr of six minutes you're not going to be happy with 605 anymore you're only going to be happy with 555 and that's the same way it works with your mental tenacity i'm digging this hard now so so the only way to go is to learn how to dig harder the next time so um I think a lot of us, and I'm I'm in this boat. Who was it that said Bracken? I forget who this was. You'll remember right away. They said, "Well, you're gonna you're racing, and now you're a fifth or sixth place athlete because Hunter. that's where you race and that's where you stay." That was Hunter, mm -hmm. and that's the athlete I've been. Uh, like, oh, I know Atkins is better than me, and Kempson is better than me. I can see their backs from 100 yards behind, and that's where I belong. But I'm sitting in a pain threshold in which I'm already familiar with. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it's a work in progress for me. And I think there's a lot of you out there, a lot of you out there in my boat. A lot of the elites, a lot of the guys right next to me are in the same damn boat. And so sticking your neck out there is something I think we need to do more often. I know we started this with going out conservative and being smart, but if you're really looking to make that next jump, it's yeah. it's about staying in contact. You just said something important in that like it's a pain you're comfortable with. A lot of the feedback we get or top level athletes get from people who are not at that level is you guys make it look so easy or that runner A, B or C is just gliding out there. Like I can't, it'd be so crazy to be that talented that it just didn't kill you. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people forget is that increase in fitness unlocks new levels of discomfort you get to hit. 100%. Where a lot of people on races are mus so muscularly or cardiovascularly held back 
by their upper limits, that they never hit that next level of pain. And now that a lot of people have taken this offseason to really improve either their muscular endurance or their cardiovascular endurance or their top end speed or all three, it's not that races will feel easier. It's that you will be able to hurt at a faster pace and you Mm -hmm. might just be able to hurt for longer now. Whereas at the beginning of my racing career, I could hurt for the first half and then I'd be so tired, I'd just die all the way in. Where mm-hmm. you get to a point where you can hurt all the way through the line because your fitness is good enough to hurt all the way through the line. No, it's very true. And so that mindset difference is key. Not I'm going to go out there, I'm going to feel these signals, and then I'm going to back away from the flame. It's I get to be closer to the flame for longer now. And once you get to that point, now strategy is at a paramount. Now, this is when people need to start sitting down with the course map and analyzing every single aspect of it and what I like to refer to as stealing seconds. When I'm at my absolute best, I'm not out there just trying to hold on desperately and my mind's blank. I have a preconceived game plan of where I'm going to steal seconds. In and out of this switchback, I'm stealing a second every single turn. In and out of this carry, I know I can steal six seconds. I can steal two seconds getting in and out of the twister. I can make a jump on the rig and steal one second, where you're always stealing seconds throughout the course because you know there's some spots that you're weaker. You might be a weaker runner, so you're going to give up 60 seconds of running over the course to the guy who's better than you in your age group or in the elite group or whatever. So you've got to steal back 61 seconds over the course of the the race in order to make up for their strengths. And now it becomes a constant seesaw. And we saw it with what Ryan talked about in the last Mm -hmm. episode in Jacksonville. He stole seconds everywhere so that people had to then burn their matches to catch back up to him. And then he'd steal a few more seconds. So your race turns from hold on to where am I now going to be super tactical? And it comes down to studying the course and knowing really honestly what your strengths and weaknesses are. So you can choose, am I attacking this carry to steal some seconds or am I stealing some recovery points here? Am I going to run the same pace as someone on this, but come out 10% more recovered? And it becomes this constant, just like uh, just balancing act of stealing seconds and stealing recovery throughout the entire race. Well, going back to what you'd said, you know, there is a a complete parallel with people and their fitness level and their ability to sit in suffering. Mm-hmm. Like the more fit you are, the longer you are able to suffer and the less fit you are, the more the suffering wins and you can't sustain it. So if you've been training hard and earned that right, you may be able to sit in that suffer longer than you think. Um, and the guys up front that are making it look easy, I promise you they've learned how to look relaxed while feeling like life is hell on the inside. I guarantee you nothing is easy. Uh, something you say is the guy, the guy up front hurts the, um, and there may be some merit to that, which is, you know, if you're in the lead, at least there's that, that adrenaline factor that you can play in there, but most of us aren't doing that. Right. There's one person that gets to hurt less than everyone else. And that is if the most talented person wins, then he generally gets to hurt a little less than everybody else. But outside of that one individual, everyone else has to, to has to give their life throughout that race. Yeah. Something that I don't think a lot of people do like the top end elites do is the way the course is broken down before the race happens. Uh, Looking at the elevation profile as much or more than looking at the obstacles, first of all. What do I have coming? Where do I need to be at at this point in the race? 
if you're looking to make that next jump, you must be a student of each race you're approaching. On the plane rides to every race, I am combing through that map for an hour, back and forth, thinking it through, then comparing where the obstacles are to the elevation profile, thinking about how that all lines up. Where am I going to attack? If I know I have anything left, where do I empty my gas tank mm -hmm. at? Uh, oh, I see there's this, this carry here, and it's got elevation. I'm going to push here because there's a downhill afterwards. So I can overextend myself on the bucket because I understand I'm going to descend right away afterwards, which is a chance for me to get a little bit of my recovery in. Um, the guys that are doing well make it look easy, folks. And I am telling you the amount of mental energy they put into prepping before the race happens and uh, we put in before the race happens is astronomical compared to what you probably are. And so I know a lot of you are taking the time to train. You've hired coaches. You've done everything. Uh, now you got to refine a little bit. And that course map study, especially for me, it's the elevation profile and, and timing it all out. Okay, how long do I think this effort will take me? Where do I attack? Where can I potentially get my breath? Um, it's super important. And now I want to talk about one last thing when it comes to racing. And it's something we brought up on a couple of podcasts ago was the old Ian Caskey I'm going to race the distance like it's actually the race distance down from what it is. Yeah. Can you explain that theory when it comes to Spartan racing and why it's relevant? Because I, I believe, I didn't explain that very well. You will now, I guess, but I believe that theory is true. Yeah. Ian, Ian hit this on the head. Ian's one of the tougher racers I've ever seen. And Ian is prone to burpees and cramping. And yet he's always in the mix at these races, which makes his races even more painful than everyone else's because he's working through cramps and burpees. But he, he had this mindset that you race as if it's one distance shorter. So you race a 10K like it's an 8K or a 5K. And you race a 5K like it's a two mile or a, and, and you race a two mile race like it's a one mile. You race a 30 mile like it's a 20 mile. And that is in terms of pacing. Now, a lot of people who come to the sport don't have a running background, but a lot of racers do. And we sometimes get caught up in almost being too conservative. Now, it flies in the face of what we talked about for open runners. But if, again, if you're going for the win, you have to milk every ounce out of yourself. So yeah. if a road runner who's good at 10Ks comes over and does a Spartan Super, which is now a 10K distance, most likely they're going to go out at 10K effort. Mm -hmm. And that's logical, except that an OCR race is really an interval workout with obstacles instead of rest. And you don't have to be able to hold your 10K pace the whole time. You have to be able to hold the fastest pace you can hold while breaking it up with obstacles. And you might be yeah. able to get away with 10K pace for that or 8K or maybe 5K for the really great compromised runners. And so Ian would go into a super and run it with his 5K race pace right from the gun. And just knowing I only have to hold it for 600 meters and then 200 meters and then 300 meters because I get obstacle breaks. And that ensures that he empties the tank. You know, he had this epiphany after the Chicago double race weekend where I smashed him two races in a yep. row. Me and Mike Ferguson ran away with him. And Ian on flats should be a better runner than me, I believe, or at least the same, correct? Yeah, he's... he ran a 419 mile a couple of years ago. He's run 230 okay. in a marathon. And that season I ran 431 in the mile, yeah. for example. But, and I still beat him by, I think I beat the dude by like six or seven minutes in the super. And I beat him by three or four minutes in the sprint. Okay. And after that, he had finished and I had emptied the tank in both. In fact, that was my real breakout weekend. I felt great about my efforts and I ran hard. Now he finished and he was like, I just have more left than I should for where I finished. Like, what the hell am I doing? 
and he was caught up and it was a nine mile super and he was racing it as if it were a nine mile road race as far as his effort went. And what happens is the 15 seconds on the Z wall, your heart rate comes down. The bucket carry was flat. As much as you wanted to get through it on technical terrain, heart rate dipped on that. When you go over the walls, heart rate comes down. When you're going across the monkey bars, it gives you these little recoveries. And at the top end, you're so conditioned that 15 seconds is an eternity. You can drop 10 to 15 bits, beats a minute and get right back into race pace. And so the point here, and the way I've looked at racing always, is if you're racing a super, treat it like it's a sprint, like go out on that effort because there is these calculated breaks that happen in these races that you're not accounting for. And it's going to allow you to get back into pacing and effort that you don't think you can sustain. And it's interesting because I had that in the back of my head the whole time. For some reason, that just made sense to me from the start, but it didn't to him. And so I think you can race a little faster and harder effort because you know that those lapses in effort will be coming due to the obstacles or maybe the terrain or whatever happens. So you can race aggressive based on that. And I really just like looking at it that way. It makes a lot of sense. You can burn the candle a little hotter early because you are breaking. Imagine this, imagine running a 10 K Bracken and every five minutes, you got to fit to stand there for 15 seconds. Yeah. What would that do to your pacing? You get to run aggressively on every section. Correct. And that's exactly what you should be doing mm -hmm. in OCR. And it's perfect because oftentimes runners get really, really caught up in paces and times. And we train them specifically on this day and this day. And we don't do enough effort-based running. And it's part of the reason Kirk and I love compromised run workouts and time trials is because on those days, you don't run a pace, you run an effort. And you get to find out what you can do at different efforts. But in a running race there are certain signs and warning bells that go off in your body that are irrefutable. When you're running a 5K and you get way too deep into oxygen debt, there's a feeling in your gut, in your hamstrings, in your arms, that once that feeling starts, your race is over. All that will happen from this point is slowing down because you're dying. Like that oxygen debt signal goes off, ding, 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 fire alarm goes off, and you realize, I'm done. In OCR, you might get that feeling 15 times in a race. And at first, a runner is going to be like, whoa, I need to pull back because I cannot maintain this. But a seasoned optical racer is going to say, all right, I can maintain this for 30 more seconds, then I can get to a carry and recover. And then during the carry, I might hit that warning bell, but I only have to get through the carry for another 50 meters. And then I'm back to the run again. And you can hit that many, they are fake signals. They are real to your body but they are fake because you can ignore them if you have been trained to ignore them. And you do train to ignore them because you've been following the protocol that we've been talking about or that your coach has been talking about and you're fit enough to ignore them. Now it's time to start ignoring them a little bit and taking chances if you're that person aiming for a podium, a PR or a win. 100%. And once you're really obstacle efficient, like I look at a course and I say, okay, first of all, the biggest recovery for me is a Z wall. My heart rate comes down on that every mm -hmm. single time. That's like the least amount of effort. It's very finite movements, but like my heart rate's going to drop. So I know Z wall, first of all. So I know I can, I can press going in and I know I'm going to be able to press going out. I look at, for example, the Herc hoist for me is a recovery. It's, I have to go through the motions. I don't go all out on it. I give 80%, but I recover and I come off of that. I look at a rope climb, a tie road traverse, any of the hanging obstacles, um, all of those things I look at on the course and say, oh, look at these back to back here coming up. I know these three obstacles are all recovery obstacles and they're in a, they're in a gauntlet here. I can hustle the one or two miles into them 
and then be able to do the same thing out. So it's a bunch of surging, mm -hmm. knowing that again, one log, I'm just reemphasizing one log interval session. And that's what guys are doing, folks, like looking at the, these obstacles and the course maps and planning, like, like it is one glorified interval session. So race to the distance down. I, I just think it's such a simply beautiful way to look at yeah. it. And that mindset right there will tell you what kind of fitness you're in. If you can't recover on the barbed wire crawl, if you can't recover on the herc hoist, if you can't recover on the Z wall, if you can't recover on the rig, then your functional fitness is not high enough. If you yep. can recover, you're doing your functional fitness and your strength training right. And that's the difference between being powerful and being effective with your body. It doesn't matter how strong you are if you can't recover on the herc hoist. I know when I'm at my best, I'm recovering on obstacles and accelerating out. And I know over the last two to three years, I'm coming out of obstacles more fatigued than I went in. And mm -hmm. that is one of the surest signs that you're not at your best as a racer. I also know when I'm at my best, especially in high intensity things like stadiums or sprints, I sound like a freight train on obstacles. Because as soon as I get to them, I go to like my Lamaze class breathing. I get on the Z-Wall and it is a really easy obstacle if you are functionally fit and you're good at OCR. So if you get to that, it's pure recovery while trying to move quick. But my breathing, I'm like, <gasps> like blowing air out, getting new air in. And, and it may sound like I'm dying, but it's so that I can just totally recover with my deep breathing and I can hit the ground and accelerate again. When I'm in mm. terrible shape, I get to it and I just said, <laughs> and I'm gasping and I never recover. So using those things in your early season race, your first race back, or ideally your OCR simulator time trial, that's how you determine what you need to work on. And then you can start attacking races like the top end pros would. Another mistake people make, I don't know how we got into this little subcategory here, but is holding their breath going across mm -hmm. everything. That was the biggest mistake I made early. In fact, I still have to, every time I hop up on the monkey bars and I have to say, breathe, Kirk. Like, And I come off so much better off through the rig. Everybody's going, huh, and holding their breath and getting these little mini breaths in. And then you come off gasp, gasp. I'm, I'm guessing 90% of you are holding your breath like I used to do because it requires such an effort that you mm -hmm. almost have to. But once you get good, think about breathing through it. And that makes a huge difference in transitioning out of obstacles. That was the biggest game changer for me, was just remembering to breathe, which sounds so stupid. But think, pay attention to what you're doing next time. I bet you're holding your breath. This isn't a silly tangent. This is strategy. We're talking race strategy. That's one of them. Our tendency, our natural reaction is to clench up and to hold our breath. It just it yep. saves you in some situations, not in a situation where you're trying to be efficient with your energy. And the easiest way to tell is, do you hit the ground and take a big, deep gasp in your stomach and your chest kind of burn? Then you were holding your breath. I used to do yep. it all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. We talk all the time. I like combat sports, fighting, boxing, mixed martial arts, kickboxing. You have to uh, treat an obstacle like a fighter does. They're striking. When you watch them train or in a fight, you always hear, every time they throw a punch, they're exhaling, which forces you to inhale. And it's so that you're never clenching and you're never holding your breath. That's mm -hmm. the way, if you're on a rig, every hand movement has to be a breath. 100%, every hand, every hand movement. It's great. That's exactly what you need to do yeah. every time. And we don't hold our breath by going like this, blow it out and wait. Because our natural reflex is to inhale. We hold it by sucking it in and holding it. And so if you just focus to exhale, your body's going to take care of the rest. So every time you move your hand on the hoist, you just blow out and your body does the rest by itself, but it has to be really intentional for a while. And then it becomes habit. Yep. 
That's good. I'm glad we touched on that. That's something that's a little overlooked. Uh, all right. I think we've covered bases that I want to cover. How about you, Bracken? That's it. Identify the map. Identify your skill set. Decide where am I stealing seconds. And that will help your mental game set or your mental game plan because now it's a process-based goal rather than a result-based goal. It's not, I have to be in third place. It's, I just have to get through the carry without losing too much ground. Now I'm going to open up on this next run. And now you're just looking at the course segment by segment. And each one is a checklist. All right. I got through the crawl section. I usually lose ground there, but I stayed relaxed. I got through the climb. Now I get to descend and you just check things off and it builds your confidence up and it keeps you engaged in the race. So those little process-based goals are huge, especially for a multifaceted race like obstacle course racing. The achievement of a large goal is the sum of a lot of small goals achieved along the way. <laughs> and that's how you need to look at your racing. The end result is a product of multiple small wins that you've chosen to attack along the way. And it's not just like, I'm going to go out and win today. And then you run like a dog chasing a ball. It doesn't work that way in our sport. You need to have a plan and check off those small goals along the way, mm -hmm. have a plan for all of them. And that will result in your first podium or your first win or being a reigning winner. Anything like that um, is just, you need to break it down. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. Now, Folks, you guys, uh, we asked the last episode, I think it was last episode or two episodes ago, for if you guys knew an age grouper to reach out to us with that human being. You guys more than answered the call. In fact, we had like 30 to 40 people reach out. And I just want to apologize and say if you felt like you were dismissed or that we didn't give you the real consideration, it's because I was a little overwhelmed, frankly that we had so many people that felt deserving or had somebody they knew deserving to be on. We have chosen our person. And so sorry if it wasn't you. If it's you, you know it was you. And if it wasn't, uh, we will keep you in mind. I have a screenshot of folks that we may want to talk to in the future, but thank you for reaching out. I hope you feel like Mir Bracken gave you the time you deserved. I just was shocked at the number of people that reached out, man. It was incredible. Um, was and we are backed up for months now worth of candidates. And like we have as many as we can take for now. Yeah. So thank you for reaching out about that. Sorry if it wasn't you or chose you, uh, but it was noted, appreciated, and hopefully you felt like we got back to you in a deserving manner. And we didn't say, yeah, absolutely, let's do this intentionally, even if we decided you're the one we're taking, because mm -hmm. the worst thing we can possibly do is get someone's hopes up and then not follow through. So everyone kind of got a, hey, great idea. We're going to keep you in mind or add you to the list because it would be impossible to tell everyone yes. And we don't want to tell you a flat out no either because- you might be in the list anyways, or you might you might do something next week where we take a look at one of your posts or a race result and think, hey, that's a great story. So you've all been considered. No one's been dismissed, but for the time being, our queue is overly full. So you can hold off on more requests until we ask for them again. We appreciate the outpouring of support that you showed. Yes, thank you guys. Hey guys, also, if you haven't registered yet and you listen to our podcast for these races coming up, uh, you're really dragging your feet. You're in the procrastination realm. I don't like that at all. I'm a doer, not a sayer. So why don't you get your ass signed up, okay? This weekend, it's going to be a lot of fun. I know by now, if you don't got shit going, nothing new is going to pop up. So you don't need to save that day for nothing. You need to get on, sign up. It's 25 bucks. Not a big deal for the Burpee uh, 10K or the Beer Mile. I'm hoping to get maybe 60 to 80 for the Burpee 10K and maybe 40 to 50 for the Beer Mile. But maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. But I'm telling you up, by the way, if you're on the fence and you think you have a shot at this, first of all, 
I think payouts necessarily, especially in the guy side, we have a few more out. I think the payouts for the winner are going to be around 500 bucks or so for just like a casual weekend virtual race. That's some real money. Yeah. You know, like that's fun. And then also if you don't win and you, you your name's still going to be thrown in the hat for something else. So yeah. win-win. We're not patting our pockets. We're not announcing this so that you pay us. We're giving the money back to you. If you want to win, no, we're not making shit. Money to sign up so you can take their money from them. In fact, my 4th of July is going to be shot because I'm going to have to be looking at damn race results all day. I'm sacrificing a day of my freedom, Bracken, on a day of freedom. Huh? I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what your plans are. But, yeah, we're going to be we're going to have to be combing through all that. So, anyway, sign up. Uh, I got nothing else to add today, Bracken. I'm glad we had this chat. I did, too. It's, it's a long time coming, and hopefully this gets to people early enough before their next big race that they can try all of these strategies in a time trial or a simulation. Set your process-based goals. Take a look at your course profile. Set some splits you want to hit. Do all those things you do in a race. Like we always say, you have to do it in training first, and then it's just going to be easy peasy on race day. Then you won't be taking all your mental energy and worrying about it during the race. It's just going to be a process that you can click into. Mm -hmm. I will say that... After our tangent or speech about racing uh, OCR a half race distance down, I will say that the Burpee 10K would be the wrong place to start that approach. <laughs> that would be let's maybe that one would be the opposite. Is maybe race it just a slightly longer race. Exactly. Distance. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully, uh, you go out and attack or race smart next time you hit the race course. Mm-hmm.